episode 293 of Retro Encounter. This is part two of Nights in the Nightmare, and uh, I am Eva Padilla, and I'm joined by my friend Pete Levitt. Pete, what's up? Oh, just uh, ruminating on the doom that uh, follows the existence of all of us. Yes, and we also played a video game. <laughs> Oh, that's, we're not talking about, yeah, that's what what I mean. That's what I mean. Hmm. (laughs) So as we uh, previously mentioned, this is the second episode of our Nights in the Nightmare game journal. So once again, Nights in the Nightmare is uh, an RPG uh, made by Sting, and uh, it was first released on the Nintendo DS in the late 2000s and was released on PSP in uh, 2010. And uh, as we talked about in the last episode, a very unique and strange journey that we've been on, massively tragic, massively weird, and I I think it served all the better for it. Yeah, I, the the weirdness alone is makes it worth it, and it's also fun. Like, you know, I mean, it's like a really easy bullet hell shooter you play with a stylus or an analog stick. Now, dear listeners, this is going to be a bit of a disclaimer. Um, I did not finish this game, uh, mostly due to things in uh, my personal life and work um, that prevented me from doing so. Um, But I think as uh, Pete and I will go through this game, um, this game still gets a... This game would still get a very full-throated recommendation from me in terms of what exactly it's doing and as something that's so unique that I just really think you should experience it in some capacity. Give it a shot. Um, and Pete, I think this is kind of similar to how you feel about it. I love this game. I played this game for the first time like five years ago, and it was one of my favorite games I had played in a long time at that point. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. this is one of my favorite games. It's uh, one I have a hard time shutting up about. So yeah, play this one. If you if you can, you should play it. Now I know we had talked about our histories with this game uh, on the prior episode, but how did you like like where exactly did you hear about this game, or like how did you come across it? I think I went through a brief period of just I think I hit like random article on Hardcore Gaming One Hundred and One or something. <laughs> like I don't think I I sought this out. I I. From what I remember, the the first game in the series that I discovered was Yggdra Union, which we talked about last episode on the Game Boy Advance. And I loved that game, played that one first, and then went down kind of that rabbit hole. Pretty like Hardcore Gaming 101 actually has a really good article on, on all of the Department Heaven games, including this one. Um, and so I remember reading briefly, and then I stopped reading, because I'm like, wait a minute, you don't move your units, they just are placed on the map and they kind of can only face certain directions. I got to figure out what the heck this is. And, uh, luckily, unlike now, when I sought it out, I was kind of, uh, collecting DS games and it wasn't that expensive, but unfortunately it kind of, um, shot up in the stratosphere as far as price, uh, recently. Um, but at the time it wasn't that bad. And so I played it and, bounced off it over and over but just the the complete weirdness of it and how it told its story really kept me coming back because the there's so many rules particularly the game is only battles and story and the rules of the battle system are not conventional at all um so it did take me like a few months of coming back to it and leaving it and coming back to it until I got the momentum. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I discovered it and beyond. Yeah. I love those where, um, you know, there, there isn't like a specific hype that you have for a game, but you just stumble across some sort of article or some sort of recommendation. And you think, you know what, that sounds like it'll be up my alley. And, uh, I think I should give that a shot. And whether that's, with video games or uh, music or movies or something, it's always nice to have those moments where uh, something just kind of uh, jumps in 
uh, from out of nowhere and ends up grabbing your attention. And when you're the one writing the article is what you dream about, right? Because if you're writing about Knights of the Nightmare or uh, Ogre Battle 64, maybe, for as a weird example out there, I guess, like, you're not really write, writing to a wide audience. So the most you can hope for is, like, the half dozen folks that read it and it, like, plants a seed in them, you know, and... and and makes them want to continue to explore, like, what you're talking about. Right, yeah. It's one thing to write... It's one thing to write an article about Star Wars where it's just kind of this given cultural commodity, but to be able to, you know, be a booster for something that perhaps has flown under a lot of people's radars and might not be everyone's cup of tea, but could really be somebody's cup of tea, um... It's. I mean, that's part of why. That's part of why this. Uh, this podcast is, is run, and why RPG fan is around because we want to be able to boost these things that might be, um, that might be under the radar a bit. We're lucky. We have um, a lot of staff who are into a lot of things outside of the mainstream, and so mm-hmm. just, just. I mean, a lot of the folks that work with us talk often about stuff that I either haven't heard of or like only have heard of in passing in the passionate way that really gets me curious, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this is probably going to be something that, uh, that, uh, some listeners as well as some people on staff will hear when they hear about what exactly is going on in that's in the nightmare. Yeah. For me, I, what I hope for is that, because obviously we're going to spoil it. And for me, when I hear, about spoilers and an interesting game and it sounds cool it just makes me want to play it instead of like oh now yeah what? like now what now i'm gonna play this thing yeah absolutely there's some there's very i i don't know if i can think of a time where i've been spoiled on a game and that has just made me want to that just has kept me off it or you know i mean there was a study done once that uh that spoilers um, had actually led to more enjoyment for um, people who are reading a particular book. There was kind of a, a controlled study on that. Um, and I found it very interesting because everyone complains about spoilers, but it seems that enjoyment is actually increased because your um, your enjoyment isn't predicated on surprise and on um, just being shocked by something. It's actually by... Um, sitting with the the text or the medium and uh, vibing with what it's putting out, whether it's the first time or the fifth time you're experiencing it. The fact that I've vibed so much with this game is maybe worrying. Maybe I should examine myself a little bit. (laughs) Oh, I don't think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's more worrying than, um, than how much I will uh, boost uh, transistor to anyone who will, who will listen, and even some people who won't. I'll preach that. Um, I love Transistor. I'm a Transistor uh, booster myself. Yeah, and and as as some listeners might hear in a later um, episode of uh, Retro Encounter, you'll you'll see just the the ferocity which would with which I go about that. So, um, but this is not a, a podcast about Transistor, though. You know, we did that one too. It's real fun. Um, so this, as we had said in the last episode, this is a game that is not necessarily character-driven in terms of character development. This is a very plot-heavy game. And Pete, there's a whole lot of dang plot in this, isn't there? We Where we left off last time, where we begin this time, is where all the plot happens. <laughs> I actually had forgotten yeah. how many threads... There were like, but, but where we were when we finished the episode last episode, there were some threads that hadn't even been introduced yet, or maybe were just barely mm-hmm. foreshadowed. And oh, there's a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, in the last episode, there, um, when we were talking about it, Maria wasn't even, you know, I wasn't even playing as Maria yet. Um, and her, um, I suppose to, to start with that because that's pretty early on in these chapters is when um you finally get to control maria and 
oh, it is like a breath of fresh air because you've been using all these characters who are so position specific um, and you still have to do that as the, the game goes on. But when you get to use this Valkyrie who is able to use all these different weapons um, and isn't so constricted, it gives you that uh, that sort of initial jump in power um, that this is a very powerful character who is able to move across the map, map and she's able to use axes and swords and uh, she is kind of your everything. Yeah, she... she This time around, I played it on easy, um, mm -hmm. which was pretty easy. <laughs> but I played it on normal the first time, I think. And there is a lot of challenge in the battles at that point. And when you play on the harder difficulties, and when you play... It, when you have Maria in your party, some viable tactics spring up, such as uh, moving her to a position where you can then, um, like moving her to a position where she can reach other enemies. Um, and the same goes for the other units who can move, like the knights and the duelists. Um, sometimes you want to move them around to a specific position and then swap them out with another unit that can attack in a different direction to better reach certain enemies or certain obstacles. And you can't swap Maria out, but her ability to move around gives you all that flexibility. Um, you can only move her on an attack, so it's, it's still not like a Final Fantasy Tactics where, where you select her and order her to move. Um, instead, you attack in, certain, in her Chaos Attack allows her to jump forward one space. It's, it gets it, it gets pretty cool when you're able to mix her in with the rest of your characters because it's often a mixed party. Where you have her with other characters, and uh, being able to have that fle tactical flexibility to perform the attacks in all different directions while you're dodging all the bullet patterns that the enemy shoot out at you gives it a lot more fun. And on the harder difficulty levels, it's... Uh, it uses a lot more brain power. It's a, it's a bit more of a, a puzzle situation in, in some battles. Right, yeah. On So I was playing it on normal, and for that difficulty, yes, she's powerful, but it's still sort of a... It's still sort of a Michael Jordan situation. You know, you still need... You still need Scottie Pippen. You still need Dennis Rodman. You still need these other characters to support... Maria, or she will not make it through. I've had to retry a couple of times because all of her vitality was drained by um, some sort of werewolf that was attacking her while she was charging up. Uh -huh. So, like, you can't just rely on her um, and just spam her attacks and make it through the entire game. Um, that's just not how this is going to work. And I do always love that when uh, a game can do that where you think for a second oh, they just handed me the win button. And the game responds by saying, no, not quite. We gave you a tool that is going to allow you to feel like you've gained something by putting time in, but it's not going to be an instant win button. I love the idea that your units are the mid-90s Chicago Bulls. So let's <laughs> see. Let's, let's go through this. You got Michael Jordan is Maria. And then of yeah, the different classes, sure. who would they be? Like... Dennis Rodman has got to be like, uh, like Str the wizard, maybe like someone who I don't use too much, <laughs> but comes in handy sometimes. Well, I I would say I would say Rodman is a uh, Rodman is like the you know the Lance Knight uh, because there's just because it feels like that perfect piece where I'm like oh man I am in trouble right now and and uh, Dennis Rodman or the Lance Knight is like I got you I'm just gonna move. Uh, I'm just gonna lunge a few paces forward, and now your um, now your warrior can use his axe again or something. And it's like, thank you, thank you, Rodman Knight. Yeah. Speaking of, I think I think uh, what is it like Horace Grant's got to be the warrior. Like he can attack from close, and also you know can reach some has some interesting patterns that can reach out that other characters mm -hmm. can't quite reach. Uh, yeah. Your Steve Kerr is your archer because that's just obvious. <laughs> probably it's probably too obvious actually. Hey, no, like you can't pass that up, though. Yeah, Pippin is like the the priest, the priestess. No, wait, no, is it, no, the uh, the uh, the wizard, because the chaos attack on the wizard is like this huge area, and Pippin like does it all. You know, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. Who am I missing from the starting lineup? <laughs> now I'm just thinking that Phil Jackson is the wisp. Get the heck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just imagining just Phil Jackson's head um for a mod um just, just on the wisp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh man. Oh man. Hey, this game doesn't I, give you any comic relief. We'll provide it. Yeah, absolutely. If it's just if it's just nonstop tragedy, we're going to uh we're just going to have to inject it in there. So I guess that makes Sort of the the underworld and the villains and stuff. I don't know. Is that like the bad boy Pistons or something? Or we're stretching this. Yeah, yeah, like we're stretching this. We might be stretching this a bit too far. But you know what? Hey, it could happen. Yeah, yeah. I'll go with the bad boy Pistons. I mean, who is a greater rival? I mean, they're they're not the Utah Jazz. Like that's the (laughs) other big rival from that time, I guess, for the Bulls. So Uh, anyway, the Jazz. So as we as we go through that, yeah. So Maria is kind of given this uh, enhanced role, um, but there's um, kind of more characters that you're still having to use to be able to move across the map. Um, sometimes there's going to be elevation challenges that Maria just can't get past. So your uh, so your hermit, which is kind of like a a thief or a ninja sort of class, is going to need to get to things. And each of these are going to have different charge-up times. Um, each of these are going to be more vulnerable or less vulnerable. So it is it is a team effort. And um, animating this is always this wisp that you're playing as. The, um, the, the lost king, the dead king of this land. And when we're playing as him, I was thinking about this in terms of control as sort of this meta idea on how exactly we relate to video games and how everything on this map is basically just an outline until the wisp is going over it until you're physically moving across it and i think about it kind of like how we have these uh these game consoles these pcs these handheld systems that just kind of remain inert unless we act on them until we do something to them, they are really not much of anything. They're not even fulfilling really their artistic purpose until you interact with them, until you hover that uh, cursor, aka your hands, over um, the controller. And that might be a bit like, <laughs> might be I might be getting a bit too big-brained about it, but in, but I found that really interesting, and I really love that mechanic. Well, um, and it, Made me connect with. It. I think yeah, I think it's cool to mention because the while I still maintain that it's pretty clear that at least for the first two thirds of the game, Maria is maybe the antag the sorry the protagonist. You are supposed to embody the Wisp, and the narrator refers to you in the second person, and um, you know will call you the player. King Wilmgard or the Arbitrator or whatever, but speaking in the you conjugation, you know, so it's, um, yeah, I, I think it is much more poignantly, as you say, with this game in particular for that reason. But although the, the, the kingdom is, you know, you, you, you come from the perspective of a king. You come from the perspective of the kingdom as the protagonist, you know, as we do about wherever country we're from. Like if you're American, America is the protagonist in anywhere. If you're, if, you know, if you're English, then England is the protagonist, whatever it may be, <clears throat> whatever it may be, excuse me. Um, but you soon learn, as probably a lot of us, you know, at least Americans learn as we get older, that the kingdom is not so protagonistic, <laughs> actually you don't say (laughs) yeah and i i like that about this game like it really turns out that your kingdom is responsible for a lot of pain and hardship uh to your neighbors and um the first kind of group of people we meet are the westkin and it's hard to they're not like a different nation i don't think and it's hard to tell if they're 
perhaps a different ethnic group or just like in a different economic class than obviously a king would be like if they're you know like lower like a, a lower caste of citizens um but you're responsible for pretty horrific crimes against them uh namely uh inflicting them with a curse that does not allow them to die and forcing them to perform all of the labor necessary to you know drive the economy of the kingdom yeah i mean it it's it's truly this um this class that is uh subjugated to just be um pack mules in some way and just be this force for being the engine of the empire in a way and whether they want to or not um this is kind of their lot yeah the first of these that you meet her name is vienna and she's a witch and um she's this kind of disheveled you know semi-zombified type character and she has a, a nice pet familiar bird who rests on her head and when she speaks one thing i think is pretty interesting about vienna aside from like her burning rage and grudge and thirst for revenge against the kingdom especially after after discovered that the king's spirit is like an active agent in the world <laughs> and her desire to kill him spiritually i guess uh <laughs> is that when she speaks her all her text is in parentheses and the bird will repeat like it'll squawk like a one word version of what she's saying or a very short phrase version of what she's saying and it made mm -hmm. me think that maybe she doesn't speak and maybe the bird speaks for her but it doesn't explicitly say so and it's hard to tell and it seems that you as the wisp understands what she's saying but it was kind of a cool little touch with her maybe she's just very quiet very soft-spoken but still super pissed off hmm. but she seems like a young woman um and the elder of the westkin is a is a guy by the name of vilgo who is like further along in the in the decomposing process you actually fight him first before you fight vienna you see Vienna in a cutscene first, but you fight Vilgo first. And he is really mad. And he has all the right to be really mad. And they talk about the horrific state of their people and how even though they're immortal, their bodies still kind of crumble away under the weight of the labor that they're forced to perform. And so most of them have mm -hmm. died in a way because their bodies just completely fail even though they're supposed to be immortal, like through abuse and just the unnatural state that they're in, they eventually cease to exist in some way. And it's this horrendous thing that your kingdom is responsible responsible for perpetuating. And I think that in the case of King Wilmgard, your character, I it, it seems like this is something that's been going on for generations. And, you know, often you hear about these kinds of situations where what becomes the norm is this horrible thing that some people who were there can only look back on in retrospect and understand what it actually was. And so it seems like this has been going on for so long that it was just the way it was. You King Wilmgard Wilmgard doesn't know any better in a way, which is, you know, no excuse for the guy, but it's interesting that the game chooses to put you the player in that perspective. Yeah, it's kind of like you're embodying embodying the soul of the nation in some sort of way. And as you're going through that game, as you're going through this game, it kind of makes you question: Do I want to embody the soul of a nation? And is this a place that's worth saving? Um, and I think that's something that is, <laughs> strangely enough, eminently relatable. You know, and when you think about. Um, Perhaps you live in a country where uh, you disagree with what the government uh, does and many of its actions, wink, wink. Um, but you're enlivened and brightened by the those who live there or um, things that are peripheral to it. And you have some sort of fondness yeah. um, for cultural touchstones and things. And I think that's part of what this game sort of embodies when you're playing as this uh as this lost king 
around this time we learn it might be even before but we learn something else that's important that is interesting and in, in the back with all this as a backdrop is that you the king are the arbitrator and arbitrator is a like a cosmic title that's passed down apparently genetically and it happens to be in this royal line and the role of the arbitrator is to maintain the separation and therefore the balance between the three worlds there's the underworld there's riviera which is like normal world and then there's asgard which is like heaven and Mm-hmm. This game is about a situation where that collapses and the worlds mingle. Even Asgard, you'll discover uh, later, mingles with uh, you know the rest of it, even though it's, it's in a much smaller way than the Underworld. The Underworld unleashed a whole invasion force. Um, but that's one of the reasons why your soul is animated and, and continues to push on, because there's this cosmic need to try to regain that order or correct correct it and mm-hmm. it's something that is very meta and very above um like a lot of people who are like spiritual might have hardships in their life but maybe what gives them comfort is that they trust in something that's above all of it you know what i mean and it's almost that kind of thing where the king's consciousness or his role as the arbitrator does rise above the travails of the world in a way um, and gives a sort of more top-down view, which is, you know, very could be very problematic. I mean, it could, if you're blinded to the material travails of the people, that still is a big old problem. Um, but I think that that tension is really cool in this game because you're constantly being referred to as the arbit- the arbitrator. People, characters in the game refer to you as an arbitrator when they discover what actually is the deal, they kind of like, it's a, it's a revelation. Oh, this is the arbitrator. Oh man. Like what are we going to do against the arbitrator? And then, uh, also the narrator lets you know that you're the arbitrator. And so, um, it's just a fascinating tension between the cosmic, the material, and it doesn't give, I don't think it gives any more importance over one than the other, which kind of fits how I personally feel, you know, like, if you care about folks or are driven to care about folks, uh, then you should care about their material well-being, not just you know something beyond. So yeah, I think that's I think that's really fascinating. And this narrator that you brought up and the role that they play in the story. So who exactly is this narrator? You discover who the narrator is like in the second to last chapter of the game, like the very end, and. Who are they? I don't know. But they're awesome because they're this, again, this kind of otherworldly being who just observes humanity. And when the camera cuts to them as the game is ending, if, I don't know if you notice this, but whenever the narrator's text come up, you hear a creaking sound. And that's because the narrator is like a, skeletal person with a big old torn up robe on in a rocking chair who has a pet cat who lives in this completely uh dilapidated house like no roof just walls and like a chimney but the fire is roaring it's a very comfy situation and there's a kitty cat that just kind of like is very very cute not not a zombie cat, not like a messed up cat or whatever, a super, super cute cat who hangs out with this skeleton who's telling this whole story, apparently. <laughs> and his whole thing is like, humans, man, like they just never learn. They're so fascinating. It, there's a cool line where he says, all sacrifice for few and few sacrifice for all. Humans are truly puzzling. And I'm kind of, I kind of paraphrase that, but that's kind of his mm-hmm. whole thing is he's just... He just wants to figure out what is the deal with people. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, and never does. There's no resolution by the end of the game. You don't ever learn this person's name. They're just in a rocking chair, apparently telling you the story. It's so great. I think that's a really, I think it's really fascinating that it uh, goes in this direction. It doesn't have to do it is the thing. Like why, why have this other thread that's just deliberately left hanging right in the wind 
just flapping around, like clearly on purpose, introduced at the very end of the game. And that's the kind of thing that could frustrate someone. I find it amazing. I think it's perfect. Yeah, and and for an RPG, this is not like this is not a this is not a Persona Five. This ain't a, like a Skyrim or something. It's relatively it's relatively concise. And so getting to the and so getting to the end of it, you know, <laughs> even though this might sound a bit hypocritical coming from coming from myself. Getting to the end of it is not this Herculean hundred-hour task. Um, at least that's what it seems to be. Um, no, it's not. It's like it's like around twenty-five yeah. hours or so. So it kind of captures. It still captures that within a reasonable time frame. So having it be in the second to last part of it um, is still pretty fair game. <laughs> And to have the presence of mind as a, like a narrative designer or something to like give them a cat that just apparently <laughs> loves them, hangs up out of the fire, goes to its feet, looks up and meows at it, like just the the creative prowess on display is like nearly unmatched. I really find it awesome. Um, there is another group of people uh, that your kingdom has screwed over over generations and they are the tiamats who does act like a different nation they are a different kind of i guess race of people or something they are half dragon so they have horns and they have wings um they have their own society and uh, their own government but very much like uh a, a, a puppet government or not in a puppet government because they don't work for you but they're like a, a much more symbolic government they they don't have any either technically part of your empire but they don't have any rights they um they're forced into land concessions over and over and uh so cape horn uh, cardinal cape horn who we talked about uh, the big revelation here at this point is that he was a Tiamat, actually. So he was this half-dragon person, and he was uh, well-respected, but kind of hot-tempered and very ambitious and um, didn't have much regard for their very strict rules that they had for themselves. And he discovered a document that uh, is the written down version of what's referred to as the unwritten law. And the unwritten law is basically the law that's supposed to keep all of what's happening from happening. Mm -hmm. It's the law that is supposed to separate the three worlds. It's a law that was agreed upon by, by the inhabitants of the three worlds many centuries ago or whatever. Cape Horn is so fed up with the oppression that he wants to, apply this unwritten law to his advantage and disrupt it in order to basically free his people. But of course, with no foresight, just, um, anyway, as a, as a result of this taboo, he is exiled. And when the Tiamats exile their people, they cut off their wings and their horns and they just send them away just at the gates of the place. Basically they just say, get out of here. And Cape Horn being the, ambitious son of a gun he is went directly to this other kingdom and weaseled his way in there worked his way up the power structure to get to where he is and of course no one knows because he doesn't have the telltale signs of the tiamat mm -hmm. so it's interesting that um they use tiamat because this is uh something that we see in a lot of uh different rpgs and such of this uh tima or tiamat being used to denote some kind of dragon. Um, do you see um, in Final Fantasy, um, there's a Tiamat dragon. Um, so I guess it's just be kind of become more of a trope to uh, to use that. Interesting, nonetheless, that they have this sort of uh, class structure to their worlds that they have. You know, you have this lower class underworld, you have kind of the, you know, working middle <laughs> and then you have the you know the the titular department heaven i never quite thought of it that way but that might be the case like maybe that's why the underworld is so willing to break through and 
cause all this trouble, maybe maybe it's not a nice place to be. Yeah, <laughs> you know, who'd have thunk? Who'd have, who'd have thunk that I mean, uh, the underworld might uh, might be pretty gloomy? <laughs> yeah, it might be. Yeah, it might be a, a gloomy underworld uh, instead of like a Tim Burton style. So the the Tiamat, um, they're kind of they have this elder who I'm not sure if he's the king. I think he's basically their Cape Horn. But he's a little bit more sympathetic. He's, he comes up with a plot to send one of their top prospects, uh, like a really strong warrior, very intelligent person named Algieri, to serve as kind of um, their like a spy uh, on the king. And so the plan from the beginning was to get her in the good graces with the king, have her rise up the ranks of the knight of the knighthood, and provide intel. And to try to seduce the king. But it turns out she falls in love with the king. Of course, this is an example of someone who voluntarily goes through the exile process in order to blend in, right? So she gets her horns cut off and her wings cut off. Um, But she does become the king's lover, but sincerely falls in love with him. And according to this elder, the Tiamat elder... um, and as he explains it to their acting governess, who's Princess Allier, uh, he explains to Princess Allier uh, that perhaps they can mix the blood of Tiamats and humans and therefore create, uh, get, get the arbitrator's blood. So get like some of the arbitrator's DNA in with their people and, and therefore they won't have to... I don't think they even know how it works or how it would work, but hopefully it would provide them some way to get some relief or give them some power um, to be able to govern for themselves more or to avoid being oppressed so much. Mm-hmm. And Algeria is a cool character because she's very sympathetic. Like she is, you don't know too much about her. Um, unfortunately, most of the time you're this, you spend with her, she's possessed by the witch Yelma to go back into the Tiamat lands um, and kind of infiltrate back, but on behalf of Yelma. But Algieri is so strong-willed that once she's in, she's able to throw off the possession. Um, but she is, you know, she is someone, she is actually a knight that you can recruit uh, because she dies. <laughs> <laughs> she, like everyone else. Nobody's um, nobody's useful they, until they die in this game. <laughs> Pretty much, but well, you know she's pretty useful until <laughs> up until that point. But it's it's quite poignant because although she does serve mostly as a love interest, there's a lot of lip service about like, oh, she's very strong, she's very intelligent. This is, she's the perfect person for the job. Um, she's essentially a love interest for the king. She's the one who tries to encourage him not to go to the meeting where they assassinate him in the first place. Um, and so she serves as like the worried wife type character in that instance uh but it is kind of it was kind of touching for me because when you do recruit her you recruit her with a lock of her hair that she gives you when you go on that trip that's the key item that you give her and she says i'm so happy to be able to serve alongside you once more or something like that that's her like little two line text that she gives you for that and then she's in your party and um, just on a side note, there's actually like different endings you can get if you let her die. Oh gosh! <laughs> like if you let if you let her vitality go down to zero, or if you sacrifice her through a, a system in the game we didn't talk about, but don't have to, called Trans Soul, um, that p- potentially opens up different endings for you. Um, but yeah, that's Algieri basically. She's doesn't have much screen time. She's she really seems cooler than they let her be, um, but at least they let her seem as cool as she, as she might be. There's sort of a there's sort of a Captain Phasma sort of sort of appeal to her, I suppose. Um, yeah. So something that you that you bring up that I found fascinating through a lot of this pay, playthrough, and as another thing that we had mentioned a little bit of last episode is uh, these objects that we have to give to the characters to recruit them or to get special items for um, our uh, for our team. It's, it's amazing how much uh, characterization, how much subtlety they put into just passing an item to someone um, and what exactly that item means to them 
can really have a strong effect on how you perceive that character. Um, and it is, it's unfortunate to think that some of these characters I just won't have recruited because I couldn't quite get their item when I was in a map. Um, because basically all of their, all of what you're going to learn about that character comes from that item. Yeah, I love how it's, it, they mix up non-combatants and combatants. And the, the combatants are the ones you can recruit. The non-combatants are just there, which obviously implies that they were there when that tragedy happened and died, caught up in the crossfire. And so much of it is because, you, because as you say, like, you know, there's, there's no real, there's, there's not much characterization. There is, it's very quick. It's very subtle. It's very efficient in how it delivers these characters, little bit of story. And it's just heartbreaking stuff all the time. Like, um, oh, real quick, I, I gotta, sorry, this is something we can edit out, but I, I want to pull up this image because I forget the exact quote yeah. of one of the, one of the non-combatants. You give them a, uh, you give them an item and it's just like crushing what they say. Oh, <laughs> there's one character, uh, who is not a knight you can recruit, just an innocent person that died there. Her name is Lucana and you can give her a four leaf clover. And she says, I wonder if these really bring good, bring good luck. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, you are dead. Or like there's a musician named Donald and you can give them sheet music. And he says, I don't need sheet music anymore. <laughs> oh, we got a jazz guy in the house, I guess. So, okay. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. That's where you're going to go with that one. <laughs> And, uh, oh, uh, Dahlia, who is a knight, she's a priestess. You give her a diary and it says, my diary holds my memories. It's proof I was alive. And that's what all these are. Mm -hmm. Two lines, one or two sentences, straight dagger to the heart. Like, it's just incredible. Remember that once we lived or remember that we once lived. It's, um, it is really, it is really powerful that these, um, that these outlines that you have and these um, functions that you have on a grid essentially um, are kind of making a, a pull at your heartstrings and a pull for you to understand that yes, you might be um, you might be kind of animating my actions now as we're looking into the past, but at one point I was independent. I had my own free will, and now this is something that's been taken away from me. This is what my afterlife consists of is kind of uh, being in thrown to this little ball of light that carries the soul of a dead king across a map. Yeah. Yeah, they managed to do a lot. I mean, this is one of the great examples of something I often talk about and, and think about is like efficiency of delivery of narrative. Mm -hmm. Like how much can you get out and how in, in, in how few or how many words. And I think I think about it a lot because I, when I write, I don't, I don't write too much narrative stuff, but when I write, I write really needlessly wordy and like unnecessarily <laughs> roundabout and loopy loop. And when I see that kind of writing, it's just, it's when it works and, and it, it works consistently in this game. It's just, it's incredible to me. Um, so after uh, we learn about Algieri, um, and we jumped ahead a little bit, because again, these are story threads that go off, and, and you leave them behind, you pick them up later. That's essentially Algieri's story thread, right? Um, so we go to the collapsed tower, the Tower of Babel type thing that the <laughs> Tiamats tried to build up to, to uh, communicate their plight to Asgard and was struck down because of their audacity to do so. Uh, we find Peach, little innocent Princess Peach, who is like a a, mon a monster now, who was forced to turn her, you know, was turned into a monster by Zolgonark and the Underworld as punishment to Cape Horn. And um, as you, so when you fight a boss, you'll see their name in between rounds, and they typically have a title. And Peach's is Peach the Tragedy, and one thing this game does over and over is like make you feel bad. It's like, oh, King Wilmgard 
scion of the arbitrator how many will you kill like this pile of bodies behind you mm-hmm. how many more will die and for what and you kill peach and it's like this was an innocent life that you just killed how many more will there be it just does that over and over mm-hmm. and um and then this is when princess alier so the the tiamat princess sends one of her agents well actually a team of agents into the kingdom to steal the king's body because everyone's kind of going for the king's body but her agents managed to get there first and they bring it to her and she uses her power to seal up the king's body as like a protective measure so no one can get to it she doesn't seek to use it for herself she wouldn't even like know how but she seals up the body so that no one can get to it but of course yelma the witch who tries to possess people and kind of does but kind of fails all the time is that's that's who she wants she wants that corpse and princess alier seals up the body and then goes directly to fight you because she, she, you killed her agent that went to go get the body. That's the end of the game. Almost turns into a boss rush. It's like there will be three bosses in a row, and then like a, a normal mission, and then a boss, and then a normal mission, and a boss, and then two more bosses, and it just kind of throws a whole lot of bosses in at the end. Um, and so right after you kill her agent, you kill you fight her, and her whole thing is like our race is over. Like the Tiamat, they're over, and there's no hope for us whatsoever. There's no way I can even kill, you know, the the arbitrator. But I gotta go down fighting. We're gonna go down fighting. It's all we can do. Mm. And then, so she's a really sympathetic character. Nothing about her is like evil or overly ambitious or anything. She's she's like someone who should do the right thing. Um. And once she dies, the seal breaks. And Yelma is right there. Like, hilariously, Yelma walks into the room where the king is, and she's like, oh, okay, a little seal. Uh, I can get past this. Uh, Then, like, she can't, right? She tries everything. She can't do it, and she just, like, throws a fit. And when you kill Alier, Yelma's still there, like, sulking in the room. (laughs) Like, she just bummed out in the room. And then the seal shatters. And she's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Here we go. I guess she attached this seal to her body. So when she died, the seal broke. Great. Well, she's dead too. That's no problem for me. Um, Yelma's a great, like, fit thrower, childish type character who is also capable of, you know, inflicting a lot of pain. Um, and then she possesses the king's body. So she's able, like she's been possessing all the other people. The, the difference I think the game is trying to make is the other people are still alive. They've ha- they have their will. And her possession, her attempts at possession, haven't ever quite been able to overcome their the willpower of the subjects. But here mm-hmm. she tries to just possess a corpse. And she manages to do it. And it's kind of funny because she's like Yelma in the king's body. And she still talks like Yelma in the text. <laughs> So, Yelma's walking around in the king's body, and she goes directly to Zolgonark, and she tries to threaten him. She says, I have the arbitrator's body, I have all the power, and now I have power over you. And Zolgonark, for being like a monstrosity, has some pretty good characterization. He's kind of funny. He's like, okay, go ahead. (laughs) Why don't you just give it a try? (laughs) And, of course, she can't do a single thing to him. And uh, so Yelma, who's this, like, super chaotic, evil character throughout this whole game, you don't even fight her because Zolganark just murders her right there. And you actually see a little wisp come out of the king's body, which is, I guess is supposed to be her soul, right? And it disintegrates. <laughs> so she's, like, super gone. Um, and yeah, we're on to the penultimate boss, big old three-headed guy, <laughs> Zolgenark. Um, did you get a chance to check out his, his design at all? Yes. Um, this was the, now this was the, the skeleton, right? The skeleton stretching over. That's 
coming up. That's coming up. That oh, is that him. is the ultimate. But while he's still alive, while he's still alive, uh, anyway, yeah, we might have given something away there, but that's okay. Like, <laughs> he he's uh, he's like a sort of a, uh, a Hydra type character or Cerberus. He has three different heads oof. to like attach to like a nondescript body. Maybe some crocodile like one of the heads is a skeleton yeah i'm look. yeah i'm looking at it right now and it is just it is it is a it is a a weeping and a moaning and a gnashing of teeth right now that's all i'm seeing (laughs) there's some good art of him it makes you like i just look at that and i wonder how one would come up with something (laughs) like that but only in nightmares uh, (laughs) only in is oh he's very nightmarish um, so you fight him, and um, it's a tough fight, a lot of bullet patterns. You got to get down. The, the two heads will heal each other. Um, but eventually you defeat him, and he uh, his corpse is there. It's kind of like partially decomposed, but you can see his spinal column, his rib cage, and his skull. And... It might have been before this fight, but you learned that um, Maria is actually an angel from Asgard. And she came down when she noticed the rule being broken. She was sent down. But she comes down and she makes a deal with Zolgonar because she feels that she doesn't have enough power to right all the wrongs in order to help, to, in order to, to at least keep Asgard out of this chaos that's about to happen. And Zolgonar promises her more power and as he does it he splits her into two beings so there's melissa who you've had several boss fights with up to this point that's her uh so they, they they're split into like orderly and chaotic versions of the same person so maria the one helping you is the quote-unquote good version and melissa is the chaotic version that zolganark is using as a pawn so melissa comes down when you defeat zolganark and notices that he's dead and that she can take his power and get what she slash they always wanted which is more power to do more good and maria of course understands this folly and tries to get her to stop but she won't listen and so melissa hoists Zolgonark's like rib cage and spine and remains over her shoulders and turns into perhaps my favorite final boss of any JRPG. Like people at home need to go look up this design. It's gruesome. It's incredible. It's a little bit more cohesive artistically than Zolgonark, but just like on a guttural like or not a, on a, on a, on a visceral level inside of like a person laying eyes on this creature it has a huge effect at least for me it's an incredible design it's yeah it this this melod margus design as she Melod, yeah she as, changes her name to melod margus yeah as as she begins to call herself yeah this it is just this rib cage and partial uh, Connell's skull uh, stretched over um, this humanoid body with these just absolutely terrible um, kind of uh, seraphic wings and then there's also kind of demonic wings that are behind it. I mean, it is it is truly something. It is truly an inspired design. Yeah, all, all the design and art, character art in this game is is special but it this is the peak this design is like such a cool as a character she's nothing she's like oh i have the power now you know no one can stand in my way but as a design that that tells the whole story (laughs) that you would want from her um and her fight is cool she has some cool unique bullet patterns my favorite one that she does is huge claws slicing in from either side of the screen so superimposed are these huge claw marks and then the claw marks begin to bleed and the blood dripping down is actually like a, acts like a bullet so it'll hit you and take away time if you like fly into it um, but you know you defeat 
Millard Margus, it's all over. And the ending I got that for me is canonical, there is a good ending to this game, I should say, <laughs> where you're able to recuperate your body, you are able to resurrect Algieri, and from what I remember, um, you're... I don't. I don't think the whole world is restored, but you're able to like. There's like hope, you know. It's like it's still an apocalypse, but hey, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you can restore it in some way or do some things differently or whatever. But the ending I got that I feel is canonical <laughs> is the Wisp, who is disembodied and lives in the hellscape with like nearly no survivors, and Maria, who broke the laws of Asgard by making a deal with the underworld and is completely unable to return, wander the land, both unable to die, just const- just witnessing constant desolation with nowhere to go. <laughs> and that's how the game ends. And um, it's pretty great. Like, it seems like a cop-out type ending... <gasps> Like the reverse Deus Ex Machina, like everyone dies ending, which is not very strong. But for some reason, personally, I feel it's an ending that this game earns. And it's very much in keeping with with uh, what this game, I feel, is trying to do. And it's very, I find it satisfying. I find it much better than, oh, they were able to restore the world or some part of it. There seems to... To me, that sounds like there's a strange sort of companionship to that. The game kind of, that's the game kind of extending a hand and just being like, okay, walk, walk with us through this desolation. Um, that's what this game has been about. It hasn't been about happy endings. I mean, every scene in this is just a recreation of, um, of a tragic circumstance. So why exactly would, um, our, you know, a happier ending be kind of the canonical one so i would be inclined to agree with you on that at least it is a little bit sweet though in that way where maria she looks out across like the beach and you can see the castle in the distance it's that iconic shot of the castle on the cliff in the distance Mm. and she says i can't go back i'm stuck here and she turns to you and she says she reaches out her hands and she goes, let's go King Wilmgard and just like walk away. And then later on, there's another scene where they're walking up the Western Hills and she turns and looks at him and she says, you know, if I were Melissa, if I were in her position, I don't know what I would do differently. If, if anything at all, I guess I'll never know. And that's just the end of the game. That's (laughs) it's, it's not exactly chilling. It gives me it gives me goosebumps in a way, um, but there's a there is a sort of warmth to it um, that I find rather beautiful. Um, wow, I think I really want to see that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's worth it's worth it to do. And that throwaway line of "I don't know what I would do in her in her position." does actually get a little bit of a fulfillment. You can begin a new game plus by loading a cleared file and you can play the game again on a blue path. And instead of Maria being the armored maiden who steals your soul away, it's Melia, who I think is supposed to actually be Melissa. And they're like, there's subtle differences in the story. And I'm pretty sure it's like Maria is the chaotic angel and Melia isn't or maybe they're maybe Zolganark just manages to get a hold of Maria. Maybe she still is the order, fo- the order oriented one. I'm not sure. I unfortunately I wasn't able to do too much research and I've never played the blue path, but there is that. And there are some differences in bosses. Obviously, instead of fighting Melissa, I guess you fight Maria. Um, <laughs> and so that's it's pretty just I think it's I, it's not meant to be canonical or whatever. And but there, but it is neat. I guess that they decided to throw that in. And if you have the Yigdra Union Game Boy Advance cartridge and you have it in your DS, 
you have the option of playing as Yggdra. Or rather, the Armored Maiden is Yggdra. And I don't know anything about that playthrough. Like, But from my understanding, there's not much different. But it's just kind of a cool, kind of uh, cool Easter egg in there. That's such a that's such an interesting little touch, and I always loved when any DS game was utilizing that Game Boy Advance cartridge well. Um, I know Pokemon had a very interesting sort of transfer system that they had for it. So even just a you know a nice touch like that of being able to utilize each reunion with it, um, I dig that. That's really cool. Yeah. And that kind of and that kind of wraps up the the story and the plot of Nights and Nightmare. That's the game. That is the game. So, um, as we had so as we had said earlier, I had not uh, gotten to uh, finishing the game, although Pete, you had. Um, but hearing you talk about it and having you um, from you know what I'd already seen and. Then you showing me these designs and talking about this ending. Um, it's something that I really want to see. Uh, I really want to experience it, and I want to sit with this game more. Um, and I hope, dear listener, that um, my not finishing it has not turned anybody off from it, because I think this is a very um, interesting and worthy game that uh, if you have the ability to uh, access it that you should give a shot to. But yeah, if you can get this game, it's it's so creative. It's unique to a degree that you... It's so outside the box, so unconventional. That alone is worth it, but the fact of the matter is it does play awesome. And it probably isn't for everybody. The fact that I bounced off of it for many months before getting into the groove is proof of that, but... You can't find, if you're looking for something different, you can't find many games that are much more different than than this within the kind of JRPG realm or the tactics RPG realm. I mean, there are games that are weirder than this, I understand that, but, <laughs> um, but it is really wor- worthwhile, and, it, and it, it deals with heavy subjects in a way that while may, maybe they're not, over, maybe not in an overly complex way, in a very r- respectful way, and um, I would even say thought-provoking, the constant uh, exploration of tragedy is not something you see. There's in, in any smart media, there's some way to break up the tone, and in this, in in some ways, I, I feel this game breaks a lot of rules, including that one, but. I feel it, it does it in in a way that it earns. Like, in a way that a jazz musician breaks the rules of music, Knights of the Nightmare breaks some of the rules of character design and uh, and of definitely of tone and, um, and of what you might expect uh, from a narrative uh, and manages to pull it off. That's truly what it seems to be to me. And... Uh... And I have to thank I have to thank you, Pete, for kind of being the booster for this game and being like, Eva, we we've got to play this game. This is this is really something and you know, um you mentioning this to me for quite a while and I'm very glad that uh we got around to doing this and to you talking about this game. Um and I'm looking forward to um finishing it and uh being able to message you being like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah, this is this rules. <laughs> Or like I can't stand it. <laughs> either way, either way, worse for me. I look forward to that. Any sort of feelings, as any sort of feelings are good because this is a game that one way or another, I think you're going to feel some way about it. Yeah, it's brave. It's brave about putting what it has to put out there out there and letting you feel however <laughs> you're going to feel about it. So, listener, thank you for embarking on this journey with us through the two parts of Nights in the Nightmare that we've gone over. If you've liked or enjoyed this podcast, uh, we would ask for you to uh, like or review us on the podcatcher of your choice. Any of them is great and fabulous. We here at RPG Fan have three other fine podcasts. 
uh, Phoenix Edge, which is about current events, Random Encounter, which is about randomness, and Rhythm Encounter, which is about RPG music. Um, next month, we have some podcasts on Near Hakuoki and a, a very special episode indeed. So um, with that, Pete, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this episode. If listeners are trying to find you out on the internet, uh, where would be the best place for that? Wandering the desolate and decaying world with a disembodied spirit. Also on Twitter at PeteBarbero1 and uh, on Twitch at Eva, don't make me laugh. Twitch.tv slash RG Halfpenny. Uh, right now on Twitch, I'm playing Mech Warrior. So uh, if that sounds interesting to you, that's what I'm doing. And be on the lookout later on for some RPG stuff and occasional Genshin Impact because I am a smart and cool person. <laughs> And listeners, if you're looking to find this wandering spirit as well, you can uh, find me on Twitter as at EVA underscore L-E-E-S. Uh, or you can find me on RPG Fans General social media accounts. So everyone, thank you so much for stepping into the nightmare with us. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. And to see a bit from our usual host, Michael Solosi. Good luck.